now for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, five, or five. What's up, listeners? I am your host, ex-video store clerk, undiscovered screenwriter, and fellow listener Jason Kleberg, and this is Force 5, a show where I force my guests to come up with a movie-themed top five list topic, and then we reveal our picks on air. Horror is a genre that I got into a little bit late, as I've talked about on this show before, but once I really started diving into it, I never went back. Horror films can be goofy and silly, they can be really fun, but they can also tap into important social issues, and at times can be really, really scary. Of course, within the genre, there are some masters at work, so I was happy to welcome Ryan Bradley, author and co-host of the Horror Hangover podcast, to come on and talk about our favorites. Before we get to that, there were not any films we missed from the last show because it was the Dario Argento draft, which, if you were paying attention on Twitter, Mark won by the slimmest of margins at 52% of the vote, just the second time that a person drafting second won the game. Nice job to both drafters. I'm excited to see what Mark assigns to Ryan. In the meantime, make sure to go and check out the New World Pictures podcast to hear more of those guys. Like I've said in the past, uh, I'm, I'm not blowing smoke when I say it is a really, really good show. For this week's featured review, I was going to do the Vinegar Syndrome Corner, but it's partner month because after Vinegar Syndrome's big sale, they go into a hiatus for a month on their own titles because they have so many orders to ship out. And I'm excited to share with you what I got from that sale when it arrives at my doorstep. But because of that, no Vinegar Syndrome Corner this month. Instead, I went to my uh, Kino Lorber film stack that I got in their last sale and snagged right off the top 1984's The Wildlife. They've had enough, and they've taken all they're going to take. I find it hard to believe that you're 28 and still in high school. It's casual. Now, they're teaming up. I love it. Nurturing their good looks. I turned you off. No! Is it my hair? And cultivating the right state of mind. Are you a virgin? To discover the wildlife. From the creators of Fast Times at Ridgemont High comes something even faster. It's casual. The wildlife. Rated R. Starts Friday, September 28th at select theaters. The Wildlife is Cameron Crowe's follow-up screenplay to the 1982 smash hit Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and it does feel like a spiritual successor. While Fast Times is about the last few weeks of school and the tumultuous times leading up to summer, The Wildlife is about the last week of summer before high school starts back up again. Like Fast Times, there's no real plot here, we just kind of spend time hanging out with these characters as they go about their daily routine. We follow Bill, who just turned 18, and he's looking for his own apartment with the money he saved up from the bowling alley he works at. He's this uh, straight-laced, clean-cut, hard-working stiff. Then we spend time with his brother Jim, a sophomore who is obsessed with 70s culture and Vietnam. We've got Bill's muse Anita, who works at the donut shop where she regularly hooks up with a police officer. Tom, a talented but stupid wrestler. And Eileen, Tom's girlfriend who works at a clothing store in the mall. Along the way, there are parties, a brawl at a strip club, hookups, breakups, and a lot of great music. Fast Times at Ridgemont High is considered an all-timer for me. It's one of my favorite movies ever. I've owned it on VHS, I've owned it on DVD, I owned it on Blu-ray twice, I own the Criterion Blu-ray. It is, um, it's an amazing film. Amazing characters, really, really funny, really, really poignant. You'll laugh, you'll cry. And I had high expectations for the wildlife. Unfortunately, those expectations were not met, not by a long shot. 
And most of it has to do with the characters. Now, there are some here that are really interesting. Jim, for example, played by uh, Island Mitchell Smith, is really interesting. He's the youngest character we focus on, but he's got this he's got this air of cool that's really hard to pull off. He just does not take any shit. He knows exactly what to say, exactly when to say it, yet he's entirely immature and unaware of the real world around him that we see point, very poignantly during a scene with a Vietnam vet. Yet, the gravity of that situation is never felt. While Fast Times was anchored by the brilliant Amy Heckerling, this film was helmed by Art Linson. This was his second and last directed film. Leah Thompson plays Anita, the most interesting female character in the movie. When she finds out who the cop she's been having sex with, who he, who he really is, there's palpable heartbreak. But Linson doesn't give her or the situation the attention that it deserves in that moment. Outside of those two, the two main male leads drag the film down. And this is not a knock on their acting. I think both Eric Stoltz, uh, who plays Bill, and Chris Penn, who plays Tom, knew the assignment. It's more a knock on the characters they're portraying. Bill is boring. And he's like that on purpose. He just doesn't bring much to the table in terms of charisma. He's the straight man in the relationship, but it's not straight enough to be amusing. He's just kind of there. And Tom is the character that everybody in high school absolutely hated. This meathead with nothing but roast beef sandwiches and beer between his ears, and somehow keeps finding a way to fail upward. It's easy to draw comparisons to Spicoli, considering that stoner surfer was played by Chris Penn's brother Sean, but while Spicoli was harmless, endearing, and endlessly amusing, Tom is just a douchebag piece of shit. If I ever did a list of top 5 punchable characters, Tom could easily make the list. The acting all around is pretty good, and the film has an amazing cast of character actors. In addition to those I've already mentioned, Rick Moranis plays a clothing store manager who's trying way too hard. He's great in this, and his hair is amazing in this movie. Jenny Wright plays Eileen, and she is smoking. Looks like she stepped straight out of a Vidal Sassoon commercial, if you get that reference. Hart Bachner, who most people will know as Ellis from Die Hard, plays the cop. He's great. Jack Kehoe, Michael Bowen, Ben Stein, Kevin Peter Hall, Randy Quaid is in here for a second, and Angel Salazar, who I actually thought was Clifton Collins Jr. the entire time until I looked him up, all make appearances. The best thing about this movie is the music. Like most Cameron Crowe projects, this one has a kick-ass soundtrack, starting with a score written by Eddie Van Halen. And if you saw this in the theater in 1984, you would have heard some extra songs. Madonna, Prince, Billy Idol, and the song Hey Joe by Jimi Hendrix. But due to licensing issues, the master used for subsequent home video releases omits those songs. Oddly, the high-definition broadcast master contains the full soundtrack. But I'm guessing Kino couldn't get the rights for some reason. So if you see this like on TV somewhere, you might find it has the original soundtrack. Regardless, there are some killer tracks still here, including Jimi Hendrix's Foxy Lady, Bananarama's theme song Wildlife, Born to be Wild by Steppenwolf, Huey Lewis and the News, Little Richard, Buffalo Springfield, The Human League, Mick Jagger, and more. It is a totally stacked soundtrack, easily the best thing about this film. And I'm quite surprised that Bananarama's theme song Wildlife was not bigger than it turned out to be because it's really, really good. So I sat here after I wrote the first half of this review and I was thinking to myself, is it unfair to compare this film to Fast Times at Ridgemont High? And perhaps it is, but I also feel like it's inevitable. I mean, it's like Steven D'Souza penning Die Hard and then two years later writing another film about a guy trapped in a tall building fighting terrorists. You're not, you can't help but compare the two. 
And like I said, Cameron Crowe's prior film was magic. I cried with Stacy, I laughed with Spicoli, I rooted for Brad, and I found none of that here, aside from possibly Anita. Characters don't really have arcs, they don't learn, they don't have comeuppance. Instead, I just kind of sat there frustrated when the credits rolled. Of course, my foot tapping to the Eddie Van Halen score. Like I had mentioned, Kino put this out on Blu-ray. The picture quality isn't great, actually. It's not poor enough to be considered distracting, but it didn't seem uh, out of this world like some of the scans that I've seen them do. And it appears that this is from a Universal Granted Master and Kino didn't actually rescan the film. So I found that a bit disappointing. I did not have any problems with the sound. I thought it sounded really good. In terms of on-disc extras, there's an interview with Elon Mitchell-Smith that goes about 15 minutes, as well as a commentary track with writer-podcaster Mike McBeardo-McPadden, author of Teen Movie Hell and author Ian Christie. McPadden passed away after the recording of this commentary track before the disc was released, and the keynote disc starts out with a nice dedication to him. Now this disc is normally priced at sub $15. I think I got it for 10 bucks during Kino's sale. So if you're a big fan of Fast Times, I guess I could see the appeal in checking this out considering it's kind of like a spiritual successor, but I certainly won't be watching it again. I did, however, put many of the songs on a playlist. And like I said, it's pretty surprising that Bananarama's title track was not a bigger hit. Before we get to Ryan Bradley and our favorite horror directors, let's get to today's sponsor, Noho Ball Industries. Noho Ball Industries began with a single vision and a single silo filled with sand. Hank and Cristobal realized that aggregates are, in most cases, a free resource, but their extraction comes at the expenses of other economic sectors and local livelihoods. Noho Ball has a mission to create a sustainable future, providing building materials for every project, both domestically and international. They also strive to develop new methods and materials that won't harm the planet we all have to share. And now Noho Ball isn't just building homes with sand, they're bringing sand right into your home for your kids to play with. Magic sand, when it's poured into the water, shifts and changes into weird and funny shapes. With magic sand, you can make underwater sand paintings, even a house and sand clouds that float, or build a weird and pretty underwater city. And you can use magic sand over and over again. Here's why. It comes out of the water instantly dry, each sold separately. Magic sand in red, yellow, or blue. Head to Noho Ball Industries in Los Angeles and tell Hank that the Force 5 podcast sent you for 500, yes, 500 free grains of sand with your first order. Noho Ball Industries. While you might give no thought to the sand beneath you, Noho Ball is taking care of your foundation. Let's get to Ryan Bradley and our top five horror directors. Welcome back to the Force 5 Podcast. Tonight, my guest is Ryan C. Bradley, author and co-host of the Horror Hangover Podcast. Ryan, how are you tonight? Hey, everybody. I'm doing very good tonight. We've got a lot of horror stuff to talk about, but before we get into the horror stuff, let's talk about your writing. So Saint's Blood is available right now wherever books are sold. Listeners, if you want to check it out, there's going to be a link in the show notes. Ryan, sell us on Saint's Blood. What is it all about and why should people go pick it up? So I sold it to my publisher as Misery Meets the Goonies. It's Mm, about a mm. college professor who gets kidnapped by uh, a local family in Oklahoma and they're taking his blood and they're torturing him and he doesn't know why they want his blood or why they're torturing him and he's trying to to do whatever he can to escape. 
Um, it got ranked by Christina Pfeiffer of the Mothers of Mayhem podcast. It's her number six favorite book of the year for wow. 2022, and Owen King blurped it. And it's mostly gotten positive reviews. So I've been super happy with the reception. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> anytime you get your book endorsed by Stephen King's kid, <laughs> that's, that's a big deal. Yeah, yeah, I was very excited about that. That's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. I was looking it up, and of course, like, you know, the first link that comes up goes to Amazon. Is By the way, is Amazon the, the place where people should go to get it, or is there a better place for you? So Amazon is a good place to get it. Barnes & Noble is great. Um, if you want a signed copy, you can DM me on Twitter, Facebook, send me an email, whatever, and I can get you a signed copy as well. Um, but yeah, Amazon is great for that. Um, it's also, if you want an ebook, Godless is uh, the best place to get it. Okay, cool. Yeah, so yeah. we'll put links to those places in the show notes. But the the first review on Amazon says, Fans of horror, you're in for a good one. Though I'd recommend this book to anybody because it's a fun read. And that's from Neighborhood Bibliophile. That's the name of the <laughs> reviewer. And I think if you're going to have anybody, like, if you're going to trust anybody's review, it's going to be the Neighborhood Bibliophile. <laughs> also, the best file to have in the neighborhood, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely the best file to have in the neighborhood. <laughs> Um, all right. Now, <laughs> Ryan, in addition to your writing career, you're also a podcaster, co-host of the Horror Hangover podcast. Tell us about what's going on over there. So me and my co-host, Cass Clark, who for my money is probably the best interviewer doing it right now. They're absolutely amazing. Um, we pick one horror trope or subgenre about once a month, and we kind of break it down. We'll do a history. So like here are the influential um, films in uh, a genre. So that can go anywhere from like 10 to 30 minutes, depending. We did an episode on found footage, and that was four pages of notes, and that took forever. <laughs> yeah. um, and we'll take two uh, very influential films. So like for Animal Attacks, we did Cujo and The Birds. For found footage, we have Blair Witch Project and The Outwaters. The Outwaters? I've never heard of that one. It's good. Um, you'll hear on the, the podcast that cast did not like it as much as me and Mary Beth McAndrews from Dread Central, who was our guest that episode did. But it's a lot like Skinamarink in that it's like a very um, build-your-own-narrative kind of story where you see a lot of stuff and it doesn't quite all add up and you have to kind of... Uh, postmodernism is called... Uh, yeah, it's up to you to like connect the yeah, tissue. Yeah, it's up to you to kind of put it all together. Got it. Okay, cool. Um, so Horror Hangover, you can listen to that anywhere you find this. It's a great show. Uh, I just listened to the Vampire Comedy episode, which I thought was a really good one. Did you get to watch Vampires vs. the Bronx? I've seen Vampires vs. the Bronx a long time ago. Oh, good, good. I think that was a great movie, and I wanted to get its crown. Yeah, and I like the fact that you brought up the Abbott and Costello movies on there, because I think oh. Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein is a great movie, and it does segue into all those different Abbott and Costello horror yeah. crossovers. Absolutely. It's a ton of fun. Okay, so now, obviously, you're a fan of horror in all mediums. We could have chosen any topic in the world. What drew you to directors? I mean, I think originally we had pitched Guillermo del Toro. Yep. And you wanted the director, so it would be broader, which I think is the right choice. My instinct is always to narrow down as much as possible Sure. for, for topics because it makes it easier. Um, I think horror directors is something that I've always wanted to talk more about on Horror Hangover. And like the different, 
I would love to do an episode where we just pick one director and do their career from beginning to finish and look at like, here are their trademarks. Here's where they started. Like Wes Craven, for example, who, spoiler, we'll be talking about later for sure. (laughs) (laughs) But he starts out with Last House on the Left, which is this like very brutal and very like documentary style thing. And he really evolved, not evolves, but his style changes as we get to like, la- uh, not Last House and Left, like The People Under the Stairs and New Nightmare and uh, The Screams franchise where he gets much more meta and there's still brutality in it, but there's no sense that like, Scream is never trying to convince you it's real. Scream is winking at you the whole time. Yeah, last time. Well, I, I guess I'll save my comments on Craven until we talk about him later. Because, yeah, if he didn't come up on your list, he's on my honorable mentions. <laughs> so, Excellent. Yeah, we will we will talk about that. Uh, how did you approach the topic? Was it like the five that you thought were the best overall, the most interesting, influential? Or are they just five of your favorites? Two of them are my favorites. Um, well, I, I like them all, but... I eventually decided I put some parameters on it. I said they had to direct three great horror movies for me to consider them, which knocks out a lot of younger directors. So I'll, we'll talk about them in the honorable mentions. Um, but three great movies. And I thought about the impact they had on the genre today. Yeah, I think those are the two main things I was thinking about. Okay. Yeah, my, my list is kind of... Uh... So the first thing I did was I went to my shelves and I just oh, thought, how many how many directors do I have here and who's the <laughs> most that's represented? So that was one way I went about it. And the other way I went about it was, uh, like you said, influence. And then for one of for one of mine, it's the promise of the influence. Now, I don't have mm. anybody on here with less than three films, but uh, there is a newer director on here that I... I mean, everybody knows about, and I'm excited to talk a little bit more about, but yeah, that's kind of how I went about it. Hearing you talk about it, I'm now worried we're going to just go five for five. (laughs) We'll have the same five directors. I think we have at least two in common. I guess we'll see. I mean, yeah, there's, there's some, I guess there's something to be said when we have crossover. It means people have to check this person out. If you're not familiar with them, if you're not a fan of horror movies, I mean, there's something from pretty much every director on my list that will resonate with somebody so yeah. um yeah we'll definitely get into it so you're, you're thinking like two or three we we uh match up on i think based on what you just said i think we match up on two but i'll save the prediction until uh until we get there okay uh, uh if you're gonna go two I'll, I'll go over with three i'll go i'll take the Google over three okay there are some exciting horror directors out there but let's get into it ryan you ready to get into this list yes you know what's gonna happen you know what's happening Top five horror directors and Ryan, you won the coin toss. Yes. So Um, so you're going first. (laughs) So my first director, um, which will not be a surprise, is I think Guillermo del Toro is an all-time great. I think he's one of the few horror directors to win uh, Best Picture for his 2017 hit, The Shape of Water, which I think is probably his best. It's either that or Pan's Labyrinth for me is his best movie. And he's been making consistently good to great genre films. He does sci-fi and superhero films as well, but they always have a horrific element in them. Yep. Um, so for 30 years, he's just kind of been hitting on all cylinders. I think there's there's one movie he made I would consider bad, and I think he also asked to be taken off of the, the credits for Mimic. 
yeah, um, I think they, they said no. Um, I think one of the things I love about him is he started working as a, in visual effects and monster creation. And you can see it in every single one of his films. He loves stuff like cogs on props that turn on their own. And he designs these incredible monsters, often brought to life by his frequent collaborator, Doug Jones. Um, even in the ones I haven't liked as much, the screen is always so alive with the things that Del Toro and his team build. His best works for me in his three really great films, I think, are The Devil's Backbone, Pan's yep. Labyrinth, and The Shape of Water. Um, and he's absolutely run the gamut of the horror stories he tells. Um, just among those three, we've got a ghost story, a fairy tale, and the backdrop of the Civil War. And uh, I don't know if you've seen the second Creature from the Black Lagoon movie, but it's like Guillermo del Toro took that movie and just made it better with The Shape of Water. It's the same storylines, except that movie, they tease a romance. And Guillermo del Toro said, like, fuck it, we're going to have the romance. Another thing you'll see is that he has this absolute love for ambiguous ending. Um, he loves children, and his monsters are almost always misunderstood heroes, and the real villains are the, the people in authority. Even in Pan's Labyrinth, where the monsters are questionably evil, the real evil is Ophelia's stepfather, or maybe stepfather. I don't remember if they actually end up getting married. Um, and I think you can't talk about his directing without also addressing his work as a producer. Um, oh, yeah. And he has this, the, the Netflix show, he had Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosity, which is like, uh, if you look at the directors, it's a who's who's list of like exciting horror directors. And he got them all money, um, which I know we're not supposed to talk about in creative fields, but like getting people money is such a big deal because now they get to keep making shit and they don't have to like go work at Target. Um, sorry for no working at Target. Um, <laughs> uh, He's also produced films by Andre Overdahl, J.A. Bayona, and Andy Muschietti. So it's just like his impact on the genre for me is absolutely massive. You really understand and have an extraordinary ability to look into the shadow side, into the darker side yes. of human nature and fantasy yes. and terror. But you also are a really joyful and loving person. Yes. So how do you find that balance? I'm Mexican. And, 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 you know, no one, no one loves life more than uh, we do in a way because we are so conscious about death. So the preciousness of life, standing side to side to the one place we're all going through. Let's say everybody in this uh, planet boarded a train that was final destination, death. So the train, we're going to live. We're going to have beauty and love and freedom. And I think that when you, when you eliminate one of the two sides from the equation, it's a pamphlet. When you take in account the dark to tell the light, it's reality. Well, uh, we're crossing over for the first time here. <laughs> right, right off the bat, Guillermo del Toro is... Uh, he's my number three, so okay. we'll, we'll push him back to number five here, but he, he was at number three on my list. I mean, you, you hit a lot of the points that I wanted to talk about. I mean, he's been in film since the early 80s. He started off doing makeup effects with Dick Smith, who did oh. makeup effects for like The Exorcist, Godfather, yeah. like just a crazy classic uh, filmography for Dick Smith. Yeah. But I love that he wears his influences on his sleeve. 
I do the same when I when I'm writing screenplays. Like you can tell what I watched to prepare to write this. And I think he's the same way with his films. I mean, he's often said his favorite uh, monsters in in movies all time, Godzilla, which he brought to life really with Pacific Rim. Oh, yeah. Alien, which he kind of brought to life with Mimic or tried to. We, uh, you know, there's tons of stories about the production on (laughs) on that one. But another reason to hate Harvey Weinstein. Gill Man, which again, brought to life in Shape of Water. And then Frankenstein is one of his favorites, which he's in pre-production right now for yes. his own Frankenstein film, which I'm so excited Very for. Very exciting. I mean, the cast on that, Mia Goth, Oscar Isaac, er, and um, Andrew Garfield, banger cast. <laughs> Can't oh, wait absolutely. for that. Absolutely, yeah. Um, you mentioned the Cabinet of Curiosities. Great, great show. But he's uh, he's a big fan of the anthologies. I mean, he started doing uh, anthology work in Mexican TV, and he has also produced the Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark film series. There's one out now, and there's one coming out. The, the dude is just an amazing director. He made one of the best. He, he was on my list for top five vampire films with Blade yeah. Two, which is the best of those oh, films. yeah. And you're right, like Devil's Backbone is amazing, Shape of Water, and and for my money, Pan's Labyrinth is the masterpiece. It's a film that floored me. Uh, I was pretty unfamiliar with his work when I saw it for the first time, and I'd seen like Blade 2, but I think that was the only one that I had seen at the time. Maybe Mimic, because that was surely at the video store that I was working at, but I was blown away. In the first 20 minutes of Pan's Labyrinth, I was... I knew I was seeing something different. Absolutely. Amazing director. And uh, I have a soft spot, an even more soft spot in my heart, because he like literally gave me a film recommendation one day, randomly on Twitter. What did he recommend? He recommended uh, the... So I had just thrown a stack of Blu-rays on that I had gotten in the mail. And I, I didn't tag him or anything. And I just said, what do I watch first? And... Somehow he saw it and he said, start with the films of Carlos Enrique Tabuada, which oh, was yeah. a it's it's a Mexican um, triple pack from Vinegar Syndrome of a director that he really is fond of. And he wasn't lying. I mean, it was a I watched Poison for the Fairies first. It, it really like it looked like the themes that he likes in his film with like children in peril, the uh, crimson um Crimson Peak, right? That's the name yeah. of it. Like a real ambiance of Crimson Peak there too. I saw that post and I also bought that that triple pack. I thought Poison for yeah. Fairies was a great movie. I think the I love the the terror of childhood films. Yeah, <laughs> yep. And that one's like a real a real twisty one. Yeah. All right. So uh, that was your number five, and we'll say that was my number five as well. Guillermo del Toro. Look, if you if you haven't seen a Guillermo del Toro film. Just pause the show right now and go watch anything. But oh, absolutely. Yeah. And another another thing I'll mention too: a lot of great uh, packages for these films on physical media. So Criterion has put out Chronos. They put out Pan's Labyrinth. They put out uh, The Devil's Backbone. So really good ones there. And the 4K of Shape of Water looks amazing too. So yeah, I mean, if you're gonna start anywhere, might as well start with one that. One best picture. I guess you could also <laughs> pull up uh, Netflix and watch his Pinocchio film, which is just one best animated yep. feature. And uh, he has he has been nominated for six Oscars overall. So that is Guillermo del Toro. All right, Ryan, on to your number four. So my number four, um, I thought we were going to overlap. And I remember you said he was an honorable mention for you. Is Wes Craven, though. 
I guess what I've tried to do is I've tried to make movies where I can honestly say I haven't seen that before and to follow um, my deepest intuitions and uh, in some cases literally my dreams so that I don't feel like I'm copying something that's come before me. And uh, to try to do things that, uh, you know, speak to sort of the, the areas outside the fences, you know, the, where the wild animals are, are still. Because I, it seems to me that the things that move us historically, both personally and nationally, are those things, those things that aren't on the grid of rationality. I must say, like, I regret to inform all of your listeners, I'm going to have three Masters of Horror on this list. And it's not necessarily that I think their work is above and beyond the best, but I think their cultural footprint inside and outside horror is too massive to really ignore. Sure. Um, Craven was a college professor who got into the film industry directing and editing porn with his friend Sean S. Cunningham, who would later direct Friday the 13th. He comes out of the gate swinging, directing the brutal Last House on the Left in 1972, which doesn't feel at all like a debut film. It's got, it's absolutely brutal, as I've mentioned, I think three times now. Um, it has a lot of his directorial tendencies in there, but especially like a love of traps, which you'll see all over his filmography, and a documentary filming style. He went on to direct The Hills Have Eyes, which is the same brutal kind of film. that got a, later, a sequel later on a pair of remakes. And that phrase, the hills have eyes, came into the cultural lexicon from the film. Um, but we really see his cultural impact in 1984 with A Nightmare on Elm Street. Craven said it was inspired by a news story about young Hmong men dying while screaming in their sleep. And Freddy Krueger, the film's villain, has kind of become ubiquitous. He's like a cultural touchstone on the level of Dracula and Frankenstein. Craven, unfortunately, didn't keep the rights to the character, so he was only involved in two of the sequels. He wrote The Dream Warriors and came back with uh, the meta masterpiece, A New Nightmare, a couple years before Scream, um, which he also directed. It's one of me and my co-host Cass's favorite films. Um, he directed the first four installments. People also love his films The Serpent and the Rainbow, which I don't love the, the white guy being the hero of the voodoo story thing. Um, the People Under the Stairs and Red Eye, which both of those I like as well as other people like. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Wes Craven as well. Um, he's So first off, Last House on the Left is a stunning debut. And uh, I am a huge fan of Quentin Tarantino. And he has said that that's one of the only films he's ever watched where he was terrified while watching it. Yeah. So like if you're not going to take Ryan's endorsement, take <laughs> Quentin Tarantino's endorsement. Scream is a film that was so influential and so surprising. Like I remember seeing that as a 15 year old in the theater and was blown away at what has become now just a famous opening scene. But when you're going into Scream in 1996, you're thinking Drew Barrymore is the star of this movie. Yeah. And not so much. And that was like that that was a psycho level swerve on the audience and it just kept doing it. And it spoke directly to horror nerds like us, where the character Randy is the surrogate of the horror-loving audience that he had tinkered with for so long. And when you see Scream come out in 96, and then you look at the years, the three years after that, they're just chock full of Scream ripoffs. Oh, absolutely. 
so many scream ripoffs. You have, uh, you have, I know what you did last summer. You have the, the, uh, urban legend. You have all these different knockoff series that come out of scream. He's a, he's a great director and yeah, he was on my honorable mentions. He's one that I was again, looking at my wall and saying, well, I got some Wes Craven (laughs) represented here, but, um, I mean, three masterpieces with, uh, well, really four if you think Hills Have Eyes is a masterpiece as well, but Nightmare on Elm Street and Scream are just stone-cold masterpieces. Oh, yeah. I don't think anyone's going to argue against those. All right. My, uh, my number four here is my newest director and one that might seem a little controversial for a, a statement that I'm going to make here as I explain why, but this is uh, Jordan Peele at my number four. One, one thing I love about these big big directors that take take on projects with big scope is is that they're using their um, their abilities and, and pushing film as far as they can possibly do it. Mm-hmm. And I felt kind of like I had this responsibility to go for the big summer blockbuster style film. And you absolutely did. And as a fan of your work, it's so amazing to just see like how your craft is evolving and how your work as a writer and director is evolving over these three films. What's a lesson you learned on Nope? that you really wish you had known on Get Out and maybe would have been able to utilize that? Wow. Um, you know, I think some of the work that um, I, we did with Hoyte von Hoytema in the night photography um, is, is something that we'd never done here. Mm-hmm. Uh, something that's never been done. Yeah. And so what we were able to do is capture a scope of night um, and a depth of night that really feels like, uh, like you're outside at yeah. night and your eyes have adjusted. So, yeah, I'd, uh, I would apply that technology to uh, Walter running God, at, the sh- at Oh, present. my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. the, the shots are just beautiful. So Jordan Peele has been working in film and TV for a long time. 2003, he was a member of the uh, Fox sketch comedy series Mad TV. If you've ever seen him on there, he spent five oh, yeah. seasons there, left in 2008. And then, of course, he hooked up with Keegan-Michael Key, and they had the amazing show Key and Peele for a couple of years on Comedy Central. And uh, that was a really great show, like critically acclaimed show, won awards, won Emmys, a Peabody Award. And then they got into staying with the comedy thing. They went and did their film Keanu in 2016, which is a, you know, it's a funny movie, but it's nothing groundbreaking. And then he goes on and releases a goddamn masterpiece called Get Out. Get Out is one of, in my opinion, one of the top five films of the last 10 years. It keeps you literally on the edge of your seat until the last frame because it's subverting audience expectations so much <laughs> as as you see sirens come into frame in the last scene of that film. Oh, yeah. Just <laughs> absolutely amazing. That moment amazing. in theaters was absolutely breathtaking because everyone yeah. thinks they know what those sirens mean. And then Rod steps out <laughs> and says, I'm paraphrasing, but like, I think it's T.S. motherfucking A. Yep. Oh my goodness. What a moment. <laughs> yep, lump in your throat as the as the cop cars are coming up and a black man's coming out uh, covered in blood from a white owned estate. It, like, yeah, it, it's one of those moments that I'll never forget in theaters. Now, I'll be honest, I did not love us and I did not love Nope. And that's why people might say, "Well, why do you have them on this list?" And in my opinion, number 1, the direction was not the issue with those films. It was the writing. And I know that he wrote them, but we're talking directors here. And I think that's where Jordan Peele really, really shines. Uh, Crafting suspense and unease is one of his trademarks, and he does it so well. The atmosphere that he builds, even in those films I don't love, in Us, it's got a great atmosphere. 
in Nope, it's got a really tense atmosphere. And uh, like I said, playing with genre expectations. He also is another one of those guys that wears his influences on his sleeve. So when I think about what he brings to the horror genre, he is a huge fan of Hitchcock films. He is a huge fan of the Twilight Zone series. Going so far as to produce the latest version of the Twilight Zone series, which you can find on Paramount+. Plus. I think they've done two seasons now. He's producing it and he's playing the Rod Serling role on camera, which is amazing. Now, I do think that Jordan Peele will become one of the most influential horror directors of this current generation. I think we're going to see a lot of people who love his style. I think we're going to see a lot of African-American filmmakers coming up that have Jordan Peele as their number one influence. I think he's just an amazing, amazing director. He's got a great eye. So that's why I have Jordan Peele at number four. Like I said, didn't love Us. I, I liked Nope a little bit more than I liked Us, but I will, my ass is going to be in the seat in the theater for whatever Jordan Peele continues to do because he is such a talented director. So now we're, we're overlapping twice because Jordan Peele oh, is my pick oh, for, for, for number three. When you said okay. someone with three movies, I was like, it has to be Jordan Peele. Um, I agree with you. I think that Get Out is an absolute masterpiece. I think I liked Us more than it sounds like you did. Uh, I felt like the... Watching all of those actors play two roles, I think, was supremely entertaining. And I think the story mostly holds up. I think the, I think Get Out, the symbolism was more clear what was happening. I think Us was a little muddled. Yeah. Um, I do think that actually leads to, to better symbol. Like, I think you having to think about it a lot means the symbolism's really working very well um but i don't know if that's what's happening with us because i feel like us has like i think there is a right answer i think that's the problem i think there was no right answer it would be working better on that metaphor level if that makes any sense at all sure yeah yeah um and i'm with you where i feel like i don't think nope came together in a cohesive way but i do think there's some all-time great scenes in there the chimp attack with the the heavy breathing the oh, yeah. spaceship throwing the blood up on the house. Steve Ewan and friends getting eaten. <laughs> I think that's probably one of the best scenes of last year. That yeah. that was such an intense, such a claustrophobic scene. I absolutely, I, I think that seems great. Absolutely. Um, but I agree with you. I don't think the whole film comes together the way I would want a film to. Yeah, that was one of those films where the the parts I think were greater than the sum. I think the Steven Yeun character was dazzling. I loved his performance yeah. in that. I thought he was I would watch a spin-off of that character. <laughs> Absolutely. I thought the uh like like we said the extraction scene was really good. And although it didn't really connect, the way that the sh the scene with the TMZ dude with the like uh, he had like a very reflective motorcycle helmet. Yeah. That scene is really great, although it doesn't add up to much in the grand scheme of things. I love the way that scene was shot. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So Jordan Peele is my number four and also your number three. Yes. All right. So we're going to go on to my number three here, which uh, this one was we're going out of order here now because Del Toro was my number three. So I'm going to slot who was my actual number five in here at number three. And that is David Cronenberg. Ooh, good pick. So uh, David Cronenberg, he graduated from the University of Toronto with a degree in literature after he switched from science. 
And he went into an experimental apprenticeship in indie filmmaking and in Canadian television. And then he released some amazing horror films called Shivers and Rabid in the uh, mid to late 70s. Cronenberg is he's kind of moved away from horror. I mean, I guess you could say his last film was like dabbled in horror, but he's largely been away from horror since the 90s. But his horror films to me are the, the greatest body horror films of all time. And he really toes this amazing line between sci fi and horror that very rarely people can do. So when I think about Cronenberg and his best films, The Fly is the best body horror film of all time, in my opinion. Just an amazing performance by Jeff Goldblum. Um, A great performance by Gina Davis, who I really don't normally like. Shivers, underrated film. Really great film. Also uh, released as They Came From Within when it first came to the United States. Uh, Rabbit is great. Like I said, The Brood, Videodrome, Dead Ringers, which made my top five list of uh, top five twins. Just uh, visually arresting films. Now, he's known for his practical effects in body horror. He's known as the Baron of Blood. (laughs) And if you watch something like The Fly, you'll sit there wondering how they could have done this stuff without CGI. (laughs) The, The special effects that they do in The Fly are top notch. He is also really known for his investigation of the human condition. What is he? He's, he's looking at uh, trauma as a disease in something like rabid. In the brood, it's that thing that you're scared of that lurks in the shadows. In the fly, a man completely losing control of himself. In dead ringers, the bond between twins. Just really, really arresting, uncompromising stuff. He's taught his son well. Brandon Cronenberg yeah. is kind of picking up that that mantle and seeing if he can one up his dad. Uh, and you know his themes still ring true with his non horror films. He has a lot of you know grotesque stuff that still pops up in like History of Violence. There's a guy that gets shot through the eye in that film that you know he lingers on that shot for as long as he needs to make you feel uncomfortable. Scanners is another one that not necessarily a horror film, but if you're looking for Yeah, body horror, that head exploding is one that everybody kind of knows about, even if you've not seen the movie. Uh, No Oscar nominations for David Cronenberg to this point, which is is painful to hear. But hopefully, I mean, the guy's been recognized in so many other festival awards and so many genre awards and Canadian film awards, but nothing here in in the Academy. Yeah, I I like him a lot, but I don't think like he doesn't make Oscar kinds of movies. (laughs) No, he he doesn't. But special effects could be nominated there. Yeah. I like him a lot. He's not on my list. I think he's very idiosyncratic in that, like, the way he, he does things. I think The Fly is an all-time great. I think, like we said before, I, I did a hand motion to do the, the, the scanner's head exploding. <laughs> but I think that scene is, is phenomenal. I think he does very cool, interesting, very goopy body horror. And I think it works really well. I agree with you that The Fly is the best, it's the best body horror film I've seen. Um, I was talking to Cass the other day about how crazy it is that Brandon and David have such similar styles, and they mentioned that his daughter is also directing a film, and we don't oh. know what kind of film it is yet, I believe. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see if we can get three out of the Cronenberg family <laughs> with uh, with an, ama- an amazing way to make me squirm in my chair in the theater. Yes. I think Scanners would be an all-time classic if there was a better actor in the lead role. I think yeah. that... <laughs> What's that guy's name's escaping me right now? 
but he apparently he was like a pretty good actor before that film and he comes into that film and does this really muted performance that uh was just absolutely terrible and i think without that performance if, if you get somebody better in that role that's a all-time classic in everybody's eyes yeah it is one of my favorite movies that could secretly be an x-men movie oh yeah i saw yeah, someone sure. tweet about that once i don't remember who i wish i could credit them with that that knowledge all right so that's uh cronenberg at my number three which moves us to your number two so my number two is john carpenter and he made my list because of Halloween. Um, there's this okay. argument that historians have about whether uh, when big historical events happen, do they happen because the conditions are present for the event to happen or because of an individual who forced it happened? Um, and I think that's the question for me with slashers and John Carpenter, because the Texas Chainsaw Massacre already had the group of obnoxious teenagers getting murdered. The Bay, Bay of Blood by Mario Bava had the killer stalking cam and the phallic knife, which it got from Peeping Tom, the, the, the peeping cam. Um, and the punishment for sex, the murder, was an, it's an aspect of the subgenre I don't love. But I think it'd be very hard to argue that slashers don't have a very punitive attitude towards sex before Scream kind of changes that in 96. Um, and then Psycho had that brutal slashing scene in the shower. And so people have made arguments for all of those to be the original slasher. And I'd argue that Halloween is the original slasher because it finally puts everything together that's in all of those into this package. Um, and it's like you could argue like someone was going to do this at some point because it's just all there. Um, but Halloween was a mega hit. And I don't think you can overstate its impact on horror with slashers being omnipresent from pretty much 1978 when Halloween comes out until like the, the mid-90s when it starts getting uh, redone as meta and that it's, it's still around today. It's never really... It slowed down in the 90s, but that's kind of it. And the, at the beginning, the subgenre was this like home-run derby for the effects team to come up with the goriest kills. Um, and Kevin Williamson comes along with Wes Craven and revives it with the meta-takes. And we're in another boom now where I think it's just people who grew up watching the films uh, either inspired by Carpenter or Carpenter himself, and they're making their own slashers now. Um, so that's Halloween, and that would have been alone enough, but I think he didn't stop there, really. His remake of The Thing from Outer Space, The Thing in 1982, is an absolutely phenomenal film. There's one scene in particular where I think everyone will know the exact scene if they've seen the movie, but where the unlike, unlucky Arctic researchers are testing their blood samples. And I think it's one of the, the most tense scenes in cinema, and it has one of the best line deliveries. I forget who the guy's name, but don't leave me. I want to paraphrase. It's just, Get me off this fucking couch. Um, but that whole scene is great. I think They, Lo they Live is another Carpenter flick I adore with Rowdy Roddy Piper. Um, who is just great in the lead role. I, I love when wrestlers cross over. I'm a big wrestling fan. Um, so, But like Del Toro, Carpenter bounced around the genre world, almost all, uh, also making post-apocalyptic films, vampire movies, ghost stories, and sci-fi flicks, among others. I think he does have a lot of misses, um, which I probably sh shouldn't say where people will actually listen to me. Um, but I think that... The, <laughs> That's just the, honesty. The strength of his his good films outweighs the misses for me. I often think about as like I I think of myself as a writer first, like as an artist. Like, am I defined or are artists defined by their worst work or their best work? And I, I really hope 
I really, really hope we define artists by their best work, not by the, not by the misses. Yeah, I, well, I think when you think John Carpenter, people probably are not thinking Ghosts of Mars. They're probably thinking about Halloween. <laughs> For me, it's, it's vampires. I feel like vampires is extremely homophobic, and I don't quite get where it's coming from. Um, James Wood asked the priest if he's gay just repeatedly. That's all I remember about that movie was how homophobic James Wood's character was, and we were supposed to be fawning over him. I haven't seen that movie in a very long time. Maybe I should... I don't know if I want to revisit it, actually, (laughs) based on what you're saying here. All right, John Carpenter. John Carpenter's my number one. So here's our third crossover. (laughs) John Carpenter. I have the most, out of any of these directors, I have the most John Carpenter films in my library. He is the most influential horror film director of all time. He, like you said, with Halloween, popularized the slasher genre. You can tell just by the longevity of the Halloween series, people are still lining up for Halloween movies today. Uh, You've had three different Halloween series by three different creators. And he also does his own music. I mean, the guy has scored most of his films. So that famous Halloween sound that you that you know and love or are terrified by, he produced that song. You mentioned... They live. They live. Made my top five. Uh, top five films featuring wrestlers. The uh, scene that you referenced in the thing made our top five. One of our top five lists of top five scary scenes. The films that I love of his that have not been mentioned yet: The Fog, Assault on Precinct Thirteen, which is kind of like horror adjacent. It's a siege movie, but there's you know there's some horror elements in there. Prince of Darkness, I think, is is really Ooh, great. In the, in the Mouth yeah. of Madness is another one that I love yeah. of his. Like you said, Halloween would probably be enough to get him on your list. For me, it's The Thing that if he had only directed The Thing, I could have put that out here on my list because that's one of my top five favorite films of all time. I would say that's probably my favorite horror movie of all time. And it's, again, just a masterpiece. Like you said, yeah. so many people have influenced John Carpenter as an influence. If you look at almost any horror director now, they're going to cite John Carpenter as an influence. He's also been a big influence on me. And like I I said earlier, I I also do a lot of writing, but I have shot a lot of things. I've shot things from weddings to short films. And I didn't realize it recently, but I think that my love of the widescreen composition comes from (laughs) John Carpenter because a lot of his stuff you see in, in a lot of horror films, they're very claustrophobic. And his films tend to have a, a really great cinemascope widescreen look to them that he he uses to great effect. And I think that's probably where I where I came from. And his his also his theme of hearing things before you see them is another great uh, another oh, great yeah. touch. And if you have never listened to a John Carpenter commentary on his discs, you gotta check one out. He does he loves talking about filmmaking and influence. And if you watch his or listen to his commentaries, they are so entertaining. You're going to learn a ton. It's like film school in an hour and a half. And his commentaries with Kurt Russell are some of the most entertaining commentaries because they just talk shit back and forth <laughs> while they're doing the doing their thing. And they've done a, a bunch of commentaries together, but they are really, really entertaining. They just kind of ribbon each other. Another director with no Oscar nominations, which uh, with all the special effects work in his films, I'm shocked that he's never been nominated for an Oscar. But I mean, he doesn't need Oscars to validate how great and influential he's been. But it would be nice 
if he got an Academy Award someday. Absolutely. Okay, so we've crossed over on three of our four picks so far. Are we going to cross over at what we've got for number one? What do you got? For my number one, I have George Romero. All right, we're not going to cross over then. I want to guess that you have Sam Raimi, but we'll we'll hold off. We will um, see. I, I think you can't look at horror today and not see Romero everywhere. He's the father of the modern zombie, having invented the concept with his co-writer John Russo and their debut feature, Night of the Living Dead, in 1968. Famously, there was a snafu with the copyright, leading for the film to be public domain and for it to be recut with different explanations of the zombies and to have so many unlicensed sequels. I know in like 2008, there was more than 30 um, when I first heard about it. And I'm assuming (laughs) that it's kept going because you can make anything of the dead. Um, And Romero never got the, the pay he deserved. Oh, I do think there's an interesting question here about, can you really say that Night of the Living Dead would have ended up on all these cheap double features if it wasn't for free? Would it have gotten the, the notoriety it eventually got? Or did it get the notoriety because people knew they could screen it for free? Um, either way, I, it inspired The Walking Dead, which is, I think, uh, in terms of mainstream horror, just a massive flag um, in the middle of it. And it's mini spinoffs. So not only did he inspire that, but he also worked with Greg Nicotero, the showrunner, often kind of trained him. Uh, but beyond that, Romero's Dawn of the Dead, I think, is one of the finest horror films ever made. And I think the, you'll see this in all of Romero's work. There's just a scathing critique of capitalism built in. And the zombies coming to the mall because that's, they're doing what they did in life. I think it's hysterical. I think it's tr- unfortunately true to life. And I think that right now, uh, horror is very into commentary and monsters metaphor. And I think that Romero is uh, a big part of the reason why. I think his influence, you'll see that a lot. I think that uh, Carpenter has that in his films, not all of them. But I think in Romero's films consistently, he's got this commentary running through it. Um, I also love his non-zombie horror, too. I think Martin is a great slow-burn vampire flick with an absolutely brutal ending. Creepshow is a camp masterpiece and one of Romero's many collaborations with another horror great, Stephen King. And I just generally like Romero a lot. I like his sensibility. I have fun watching his stuff. Yeah, Romero's on my honorable mentions. I, I can't see any horror list without Romero being mentioned his dead movies are obviously classics. Dawn of the Dead is also my favorite uh, dead movie. I think that is an it's an amazing film that I saw for the first time way too young yeah. and was only impressed. I was never like scared of it. It was just I remember it impressing me. Creepshow is a great series. I have like all the Creepshow stuff on my shelf, except for Creep the Creepshow 3, which is just an absolute travesty. Yeah. But he had nothing to do with that, obviously. <laughs> Uh, his a couple of Romero films have made my lists in the past. We've got The Dark Half, which is an underrated Stephen King adaptation by Romero, which made top five writers or top five films about writers. And then Bruiser, which is another one that I think is underrated from George Romero. That one made top five movie masks, which hmm. uh, it's it's an underrated fun movie. Martin, I have not seen yet. I'm looking Ooh. forward to seeing it. I think it's being remastered as we speak, and it's either coming out or it's out already on uh, 4K or Blu-ray, so I'm really looking forward to checking that out. You're in for a treat. <laughs> I can't wait. Okay, so George Romero at number one for you. Um, 
like I said, number one for me was John Carpenter, so I'm going to give you my number two here at the top, and that is Toby Hooper. Ooh, good one. Toby Hooper, man, he he spent the 60s as a college professor, and in his spare time, he was a cameraman for documentaries. And then in 1974, he got a small cast together, which were basically college teachers and students, and they went out and made this little independent film called The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, featuring the the character everybody knows, Leatherface. And the film just, it changed horror. It became an instant classic. It You look on any like scariest films of all time, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is going to be on that list. I just did films that, uh, five films that scarred you as a child. And two of his consistently came up. Of course, Texas Chainsaw Massacre was, was one of them. Poltergeist was the other one. Oh, and yeah. I don't care what anybody says. He directed Poltergeist. Steven Spielberg did not. You can go and look at what anybody says. All Pretty much all the actors that worked on that film said Toby Hooper was my director. I think Steven Spielberg also said that Toby Hooper directed that. I don't think there's anyone who was involved with the production. I've heard that yeah. rumor, but no one is saying that. There's a there's a lot of like yeah there's a lot of internet uh, folks that are like well, that's a Steven Spielberg he ghost directed it no he didn't he was a producer and yes he was on set but Toby Hooper was the one calling action and calling cut he was <laughs> the one you know telling people what to do in addition to those two amazing films he went in a totally Gremlins two kind of direction with Texas Chainsaw Massacre two. He made one of the greatest 80s sci-fi horror films with Life Force. Just a, yeah. <laughs> it's like such an entertaining film. I saw that one for the first time a couple of years ago and was blown away. Uh, he directed the Fun House, Night Terrors, the, Salem, the Salem's Lot miniseries, yeah. and uh, Eaten Alive, which is a film about a guy who feeds people to his crocodile. I, <laughs> I think that's the, the storyline in that one. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but Robert Englund was in that one. And... Uh, the Toolbox Murders remake he did in 2004 wasn't bad. I was actually uh, expecting that one to be pretty terrible, and it was pretty good. His He brings this real DIY sensibility to every one of his films. From that, you know, that $300,000 picture that he directed the first time that, that became one of the most profitable independent films ever. And his influence is, again, unquestionable. Even Ridley Scott said that Texas Chainsaw Massacre was a huge influence on him making Alien. Mm. Um, I I think that Toby Hooper is a really underrated horror director when people start talking about their their top horror directors of all time. I think he was fantastic. And uh, yeah, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's, it's funny. You, you go into that movie the first time thinking it's going to be this bloody mess, and there's really not that much gore shown on screen. It's really a, a subtle movie, and they just were doing the best with what they had, and it became this instant classic. It's yeah. an amazing movie. The implied violence in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, especially the hook scene, that lives <laughs> yeah. in my brain. Leatherface putting that woman on the hook. And I think the the second time I watched it, I remembered like the hook coming out through her on the other side. That didn't happen. It was no. all implied and it was all so well done. Have you checked out the... I live in Austin, Texas. I live outside Austin. Have you checked out oh. the, the stuff around here? I've there not been is, to Austin. Uh, in Bastrop, Texas, actually kind of on the way to the airport from Austin, there is the original gas station, which is now a barbecue place and horror memorabilia shop. Oh, um, okay. So a lot of fun. And then uh, like three hours away from that, there is the house. 
and the house from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is now uh, a regular ass cafe. With upstairs, <laughs> they have uh, Texas Chainsaw stuff, but downstairs it's just, from what I've been told, I haven't actually been to that one because um, it's a three-hour drive. Yeah, um, but absolutely worth long way out to get coffee. Point. Yeah. Let's recap our list here from five to one. I'll go first. And I'm going to go in the order that I had originally had them. So at number five, I had David Cronenberg. At number four, I had Jordan Peele. At number three, I had Guillermo del Toro. And number two, I had Toby Hooper. And my number one was John Carpenter. Very cool. Uh, my number five was Guillermo del Toro. Number four was Wes Craven. Number three was Jordan Peele. Number two is John Carpenter. And number one was George A. Romero. Solid lists. Now, I know there are, uh, we're doing top five. You had mentioned there were some horror directors you were excited about, but they hadn't directed three films. There were also a couple that I'm sure you had to just leave off because there was not enough space. Who are some of those honorable mentions you wanted to mention? Yeah, so um, Jennifer Kent is the one that came closest to making the list for me. I yep. think that her influence with the Duke. Um, kicking off the new Monsters Metaphor craze, which I absolutely love, is a phenomenal film. I think The Nightingale was not my favorite um, and not a kind of film I generally enjoyed, but I think it was very well done. I think she was great. Takashi Mike, uh, t- sorry, Takashi Mike, I think is phenomenal. I think Audition is phenomenal. I think everything I watch from him is great. I think a lot of it is not horror, like uh, the Yakuza film, right. Graveyards of Honor, has probably the grossest scene I've ever seen in a movie, um, but it's totally not a horror movie. It's just like his sensibility is so <laughs> over the top. Yeah. Um, other ones I love, Natasha Kermer- uh, Natasha Kermani, I think is phenomenal, Bria Grant, um, Anna Lily Amirpour, Ari Aster, and Robert Edgars are the other ones I have written down for my list. Um, who I think are just great, and I'm so excited to see what they do in the future. Yeah, Takashi Miike, you mentioned, uh, he didn't come to my mind as being a horror director because he's done so many other things, and I think the first one that uh, comes to mind for me when I think of him is Ichi the Killer. But oh, yeah. He definitely has uh, some great horror movies. I mean, Audition is amazing. Yeah, well, I think <laughs> he directs like two to four movies per year, so it's oh, hard yeah. to, to pigeonhole him because his output is just... It's like a hose. He's yeah. He's done everything you can think of: comic book adaptations, manga adaptations. He's done just so many, so many different things. Jennifer Kent is an interesting one too. I love the Babadook. I think oh, that yeah. is one of the scariest movies. I guess I can't say. Yeah, last last ten years it came out in the last ten years. That's a a really really scary film. I remember watching that. I didn't know anything about it. I was watching it on a laptop. Well, I was on the bed and my wife was doing something else next to me and she wasn't watching it. She's not a huge fan of horror movies, but she was getting scared just listening to the <laughs> film and specifically the, uh, the Baba duck, 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 you know, she like, oh yeah, was getting freaked out by that. In terms of honorable mentions, I also had Ari Aster on there. Uh, I don't know what to expect for Bo is Afraid, but I can tell you that both Hereditary and Midsommar are some of the most terrifying movies that I've seen in the last couple of years. Yeah, he does not hold back um, in terms of the horror (laughs) stuff. He also, uh, he ignores a lot of stuff. Like, I think, like, uh, his portrayal of characters' disabilities, like, I think most movies are moving in this direction where, like, 
we're going to treat people with disabilities as human. And Ari Aster's yes, moving in this direction people. where it's like, that's fucked up and scary, right? And he just like <laughs> zooms in. Um. Yeah. Um, there are like, when you think about imagery, there are scenes in both of his films that will never leave my brain and scenes that we still, my friends and I talk about today. Oh yeah, the, uh, the telephone pole. Yeah, that's that's one that we bring up all the time when we're playing we're playing video games or something, and we got a character, uh, one character hanging out of the side of the car, and there's a close call. It's you almost hereditaryed me. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen the uh, the hereditary memes? I, I I can't say that I have. They're horrible. Um, but but also I think like the movie hurts you so deeply you need it there's one that's like a a Halloween costume where one of you plays the the girl who gets her head knocked off and the other plays the the telephone pole as a couple's costume (laughs) oh I gotta Uh, check that out (laughs) (laughs) okay I mean the the other thing I'll give Aster credit for is that he gets amazing performances out of his leading ladies and I honestly think that both Florence Pugh and uh, Tony Collette were robbed of, of Oscar nominations for their roles. Absolutely. Um, the other ones I had on my honorable mentions that we have not mentioned yet. Well, you, you kind of brought it up. Sam Raimi is right up oh, there. He's in, wonderful. In my possibilities. Yeah. I love him. I love his the things he produces and as well as directs. But horror comedies, he's he's the master of the horror comedy, in my opinion. Mike Flanagan is another one who's very Ooh, very yeah. exciting. But his movie output has not impressed me as much as his TV output. But his yeah. TV series, Midnight Mass, is is another masterpiece. Midnight Mass gave me a panic attack. I don't really get panic attacks from TV shows. But that one, like I need to go walk my dog after a certain episode and just cuddle her for a couple hours because that hurt. <laughs> that was one of those TV shows. I, I work from home and there are times when I'm just kind of doing busy work and I got something on and on the TV. And I remember I started watching Midnight Mass while I was working. And then I looked down 45 minutes later and realized I hadn't done a goddamn thing because I was just too (laughs) focused on what I was watching and realized this can't be a work show. This has to be a sit down and watch it show. So good. Uh, Fede Alvarez was on my list. He's a really great young director. That's very exciting. And then two Italian directors, really three Italian directors, um, Argento, Fulci, and Bava all were oh, yeah. very close. Yeah, Mario Bava is one of my favorites. Um, for, yeah, you for mentioned Bay of Blood. I can never remember if it's Black Sabbath or Black Sunday. That's the anthology. Uh, Black Sabbath, I believe. That's my favorite anthology film. I think that one is just so much fun. Like I said, I can never remember if it's... Because they... For me, Sabbath and Sunday are uh, are synonyms, and that's what. Uh, yeah, it, it is. It's Sabbath. Yeah. Well, crashly, Sabbath is the one. Yeah, just a great film. Suspiria is great by Argento. Um, Fulci is the one I've seen the least of, but the things I've seen have been very great scares, very great kills. Yeah, he's got a lot of great uh, practical effect kills that will stand up they'll stand the test of time and the eye one getting pushed into the the wood straight through the eye is one oh, yeah. that is a top-notch kill scene and that's in in zombie that's in zombie which also yeah. has the the shark zombie fight <laughs> yeah. yeah yes it's obviously it's his movies are get very ridiculous but uh really really entertaining and then Argento, if, if listeners, if you're interested in checking out more Argento, the uh, draft, and when is this going to air? This 
by now the draft will be up but we did a dario argento draft for the patreon oh, so that's make fun. sure to check that out yeah with the guys from the uh new world pictures podcast so nice that was a good one where do you want people to go to see more of your work check out ryancbradley.com um check out the horror hangover uh, if you like the stuff i'm doing definitely grab a copy of saint's blood um and thanks for listening Got any other uh, any other books on the way? Yeah, it's because uh, you said you work in film, correct? Yeah, why? Well, yeah, screenwriting. Yeah. yeah. So like for so the, w- the way it's been explained to me is that in screenwriting it's yes 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 until you get a no, and uh, <laughs> in writing uh, fiction it's no 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 until you get a yes, and I'm in the no 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 part uh, of my second book submitting, and I have a third book that I'm revising, but until there's a contract, I'm not gonna talk about the plots oh yeah yeah i wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't yeah. expect you to uh cool so look for more coming from ryan bradley as soon as we get those yeses and yes. uh the links to everything that already exists and is out will be in the show notes so go listen to horror hangover go pick up saints blood and uh follow ryan on twitter horror writer ryan yeah at ryan b4890 if you're looking for the the at cool i'll put a link to that in the show notes as well Ryan, thank you so much for coming on. This was a, a joy to research and really catch up with some old favorite directors. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jason. It was a really good time. Listeners, who's your favorite horror director? Who did we leave off that left you smacking your dashboard in anger? Let me know on social media at Force5Pod on Twitter, at Force5Podcast on Instagram, and on the Cinematics Facebook page. Or you can email me directly at Force5Podcast at gmail.com. Links to everything Force 5 and Ryan Bradley are in the show notes. Links, social media, all that stuff. Like always, I make it easy for you to support the guest. I make it easy for you to support me. And again, if you want to support me, take two minutes. Review Force 5 wherever you get your podcast. Please tell your friends about the show. Those two very free, very simple things can really help my audience grow. Theme songs today come courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go watch some great horror films. 